Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Tony Blair burst on the scene in the 1990s as the leader of New Labour, the Labour Party in Britain, and led the Labour Party to victory in 1997, after which he served 10 very consequential years as Prime Minister of Great Britain. During those years, he helped modernize the social safety network, propelled Britain's economy forward, and then ultimately ran into significant opposition for his close relationship with George W. Bush and alliance over the Iraq war. I sat down in London last week with Tony Blair to talk about today's political environment and the future under Brexit. Tony Blair, it's great great to be with you here in uh, London. You know, you uh, are a globally known person, Uh, But a lot of people who listen to this podcast, certainly in America, are uh, not all that familiar with your personal story. And um, uh, in in preparing, uh, and I know you've written an autobiography and so on, uh, in preparing for this, um, I was struck by uh, some things in your your biography, particularly how you grew up, um, because you had a very sort of interesting uh, childhood that changed very dramatically. And I just wanted to ask you about that, about your folks. Yes, I was brought up actually in a, um, in a very conservative household. My, my father was a member of the Conservative Party. My, my father had come from a very poor background himself. He was a foster child in a poor part of Glasgow. Um, he, he was actually Secretary of the Young Communists of Scotland when he was uh, a young guy. He then went... That wasn't the conservative part of his... Uh... Uh, no, exactly <laughs> so. So he was very, he was very, very uh, uh, radical. And then he, he literally had the opposite journey to most people in the Second World War. He joined the armed forces and fought in the Second World War, uh, went from being a private to a... Um, I think he was a, an acting major by the end of it. And uh, switched from socialist to con- from socialist to conservative, which was a very odd. Most people in in Britain, which yeah. is why there are usually intermediate steps at least. Yeah, yeah. but he, he anyway he became a strong conservative. Um, so I grew up in a conservative house- household, um, but I also had a great awareness of the reasons why my my, my father basically felt that that the the more left wing part of politics held people like him back, right? And, uh, so he, he was very much part of that aspirational Mrs. Thatcher type of uh, conservative. Um, but then when I was 10 years old, he suffered a very serious stroke. He was running for office at the time. He was about to become a conservative MP and would no doubt have become a conservative uh, minister. Uh, and he, would, you know, he was a very, very accomplished politician. 
and lawyer and speaker by that time. But he, at 40 years old, he suffered a very serious stroke. Well, let me, let me just ask you before I want to talk about that. Were you involved? Did you, were you aware of his politics? Did you go with him to events? Was this something that uh, in, interested you even then? Yeah, I mean, because even after his stroke, he stayed with the Conservative Party. We used to see people there, and, and often we would have dinners with um, aspiring Conservative MPs, and uh, yeah, politics kind of flowed through our, our home pretty much. But the stroke was, he was 42 years old. 40, actually. Oh. So this was a... Stunning. Yeah, and it was a stunning. It was a terrible... I mean, it was brought about by overwork, actually, because he was so ambitious as a guy. And he, uh, he, he then had to learn to speak again over sort of three or four years, but never fully recovered, and so was never really able to be a, an active politician again. And how did that impact on you? You were uh, 10 years older. Thereabouts? It, yeah, it impacted a lot. I mean, it was a big change in our family circumstances. He, he had been earning a lot of money and suddenly didn't. Um, he, uh, you know, his life changed completely. He went from being in the northeast of England. He was becoming a really known figure. Obviously, he, he then went out of the picture altogether. So we were very aware of the changed circumstances. And then your mother, uh, not that many years later, became ill uh, herself. Yes, so my mother died um, from cancer when I was still young, and my sister actually was also very ill for a long period of time. I always sort of, when I say this to people, it sounds as if my childhood must have been very traumatic. Actually, for all of the problems and challenges, you know, I, had a, I was lucky in having a very loving family and actually grew up in feeling perfectly well settled. But I, I, I think, you know, sometimes you look back on your life and you things that didn't strike you at the time, suddenly you realize, no, that was quite a defining moment. And I think the combination of my of the illnesses of my parents and the changes in our circumstances gave me a very keen sense of the fragility uh, of position and the need to make your way in life and work hard and strive. And, and presumably that fragility also meant strive quickly to reach... Uh, very uh, high, very quickly, because you you rose rather quickly through the Labour Party rank. Yes, yeah, so at university, I, I I became more to the left in, in politics. What made you? What made that? Uh... Actually, two two curious things happened to me at the same time. I, I met a group of people. This was at Oxford University. Mm-hmm two Australians, an African and an Indian. <laughs> so none of them were actually from my own country. And one of them was very influential in reigniting my Christianity. So I uh, sort of rediscovered faith. And then at the same time, the others sort of took me on a journey where I started to realize that social conditions really mattered to people's development. Whereas I'd always had a very sort of individualistic view of you know human existence drummed into me by my dad, and so I I moved to the left at university under their influence, and then in the Labour Party, you know I was actually extremely lucky to get into Parliament as young as I did when I was uh, just turned thirty, and then frankly at the time the Labour Party was in such disarray that anyone who seemed relatively capable, breathing, yeah, <laughs> anyone who seemed relatively capable got fast promotion. 
You, I, we skipped over one part of your biography I found intriguing is the interregnum where you were a uh, band manager. Uh, that was apparently important to you, music as well, huh? Yeah, no, I, I, was, I managed a band and then was in a band for, for some time. And this was, this was great because it... I think one thing that's really important in politics is to have as broad an experience of life as possible. You know, it, 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 being obsessive about... I mean, about politics is, is dangerous. Being committed is very important, but if you literally it's the only thing in your life, I think you've become a little narrow. When you went to Parliament, you, uh, you came under the tutelage of Neil Kinnock, who was the Labour leader, um, and uh, a brilliant orator, pretty far left, uh, I would say, um, what what did you uh, learn from him, uh, and what did you adopt from that experience? What what were the eighty? What did the eighties teach you? So in the eighties, the Labour Party was kind of subject to a sort of takeover by the far left that it repelled only just. Okay, we very nearly uh, were were taken over by the far left at the time. Neil Kinnock was in some ways a sort of compromise because he was from the left but a much more sort of mainstream type of figure. And it turned out that he was a leader of, you know, considerable courage and was prepared to take on what were actually quite undemocratic far-left forces, and he did that, you know, really brilliantly. Um, And I learnt a lot from him. um, But I also believed that in the end we didn't move far enough in terms of trying to marry together the way the modern world was developing with, with Labour Party principles, traditional Labour Party principles. So, um, you know, unfortunately, he never won an election, but his impact on changing the Labour Party and helping put it in a position where it was eventually electable was very important. You famously uh, were about the project of redefining the Labour Party, new Labour, uh, and... Uh, assembled a, a really sophisticated team around you uh, to do that. What was the sort of propelling uh, philosophy uh, that drove that project? I think it was, it was really the unification of very traditional concepts and values around social justice with the belief that in a world of accelerating change, you had to modernize the application so that, for example, it was no good for us simply to advocate an old-fashioned type of state as the answer to people's problems because it's not the way that people lived anymore or worked anymore or thought anymore. Um, So it was really quite a worked-out political philosophy that was about ensuring that your essential mission as a progressive force remained the same, which is to open up opportunity for people to create a more just society but the means of doing it would be much more modern, much more related to the real world, and much away from a kind of big state solution. You you were elected five years. Your party was elected. You took leadership about five years after Bill Clinton was elected in the U.S. How much did you study his campaign and his approach? Because he also was about redefining the Democratic Party after the 80s when the party was very much in the wilderness and very much on the left. Yeah, we, we studied it a lot, obviously, and, and, and um, you know, the concept at the time of the New Democrats and so on, and 
made a big difference to the way we, we looked at things. And there was at that point, there seemed to be a, a unity between what you needed to do to win and a genuine principled view that our parties had to modernize and change because the world around us was changing. And uh, what, were, what, what were the sort of fundamental things that were sort of the linchpins of, of that platform? So, so there would be things like, um, you know, reforming the state. And in that case, for us, that was very much about reforming public services. So in education, in healthcare, you know, we put forward big reforms that changed the structure of the, the services and made them frankly, much more oriented towards personal choice for the citizen. Okay, so that was one big area of change. Another area would be that we'd work with trade unions, but we would work with business too. So, you know, the notion of strengthening enterprise, uh, you know, championing the creation of new business was also something that was very important to us. Technology, even at that stage, I mean, actually Bill Clinton and I did the Human Genome Project, uh, which we launched and which, you know, in time has obviously become extremely important, much more important than I understood at the time, by the way. Um, but so th- that was also part of of it. And we were, inter- in, in, in international terms, we were very much for engagement, not isolation, for free trade and not protectionism. So th- these were, you know, these, these were sort of big ideas um, that we'd worked out over a long period of time and were very similar developments in the U.S. and here. I think the other thing was on law and order, for example. I mean, the Labour Party had always been, in the U.K., thought of as soft on law and order. Law and order was entirely a conservative issue. One of the things I did before I became leader was really change our position on that and, and you know, come up with what I, I used to describe as a sort of, you know, um, uh, private shorthand as sort of pro-gay rights and tough on crime <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean so in other words socially liberal but not when it came to people being aggressive or abusive towards others and, uh, you know we, we were you're here for a, a, a conference uh, of the University of Chicago the Institute of Politics is involved with that we, we just had a, a bit of a discussion about immigration and you know, I'm looking at the politics of today, and in certain ways, there are parallels to uh, that period. And immigration uh, has uh, become, in certain ways, a, a, a divisive uh, issue in our politics in the way that crime uh, was then, perhaps crime and welfare. But um, and you're a believer. We've seen this. Um, we've seen this vote on Brexit here. In Britain, you're a believer that uh, the the that immigration and the free flow of people across borders is as much a, a driver of Brexit and the sort of reaction uh, that drove it in in America. Trump is a reflection of that as well. Talk about that. So immigration, I think, is a huge issue. I think it was the principal driver behind the Brexit vote. Uh, I think it's an issue all over Europe today. There are new parties being created around it. There are governments falling and governments rising as a result of it. And, you know, I, I adopt towards it the following position, which is, is, has some of the spirit and intent behind, as it were, what, what we were doing 20 years ago and what Bill Clinton was doing in the U.S., which is to say, I think 
in respect of immigration, we need rules but not prejudices. Right. So, in other words, I think if you want to take the poison of immigration as an issue out of the system, you've got to be prepared to accept and act upon the genuine anxieties that people have. Anxieties that are partly about is our culture being changed in ways that we you know, find difficult for our way of life, or are there, um, you know, is there an absence of proper structure and order around the way immigration happens? In my view, you have to deal with that then to be able to make the absolutely necessary case as to why immigration is really a good thing and not a bad thing. I mean, immigration has brought enormous benefits to Britain. Yeah. European immigration has brought enormous benefits to Britain. So it would be a tragedy if our failure from the centre to deal with people's anxieties left the field open for those who want to take the immigration issue and exploit it. Um, and, you know, all the time, you know, my, my view is you, 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 in today's world you need answers, otherwise you just get the anger, right? Now, what I think is an open question, and it's a big debate in the Democrats in the US, and it's a big debate in the Labour Party and elsewhere in Europe, uh, in, on the progressive side is, has the centre ground actually shifted and does it, or does it no longer exist in the way that Bill Clinton and I used to talk about it? Yeah. Or is it just that we're not advocating it anymore? You know, this is a really interesting question, which I, you know, my view and my instinct is, is the problem is the centre ground's not arguing its case. But... I may be wrong. <laughs> well, the question is, is whether the center ground has a case that is sufficiently responsive to the anxieties and concerns people have, not just cultural, but economic. Right, 100%. So, so the question is, to my mind, because I think the circumstances of today are completely different from 20 years ago when I came to power, because we were in a relatively benign set of circumstances. The challenges are much bigger today. There's a, the, the change, the accelerating change I was describing is accelerating even faster, particularly around the changes that the next wave of technology will bring. You know, globalization has got its losers, right? And there are communities and people that feel completely shut out and left behind by it. So in my view, you need solutions that are radical but still sensible. And the risk is if, you, if the center ground isn't sufficiently strong to put that forward, then... Um, you'll end up with solutions that may be radical but aren't sensible. It's fair to say that if you were to uh, show up at a Labour Party meeting today, you would not be greeted with rousing <laughs> ovations. <laughs> no, uh, it's probably true. Well, it depends which Labour Party, but probably yes. And uh, the Labour Party is has is, is drifted uh, pretty far left uh, in part because of anxieties over uh, the economy, a sense that... Uh, in the words of both the left and the populist right, that the economy has been rigged and that there are winners not just because of globalization, but um, the the way capitalism has been gamed uh, that uh, that leave a, a lot of people on the on the outside and create a small group of winners um, how do, How does the center respond to that? Yeah, well, this is the absolutely key challenge because the truth is the answer to it is to reform the system and not scrap it. Um, because if you return to, for example, if, if the Labour Party 
here goes back to a whole set of programs around just more spending and nationalization and you know it's 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 not going to it's not really going to give those communities or those people the opportunity to prosper in a world that's changing you've got to equip them for that change so i would be much, much more radical in the policies putting forward around technology, how we use it, how we deal with it, how we regulate it. Are we much more radical in terms of infrastructure? Um, probably actually things like tax and welfare reform. Um, and, you know, in terms of... Infrastructure would involve spending, obviously. Uh, yeah, it, it, I think it, it, it would certainly involve spending differently. And I think there's a... You know, what what is extraordinary to me is that... In 2017, you know, you still have a basic attitude towards tax and spending. There's not really that much different from 50 years ago. Okay, but the world is completely different. Um, and government itself is still pretty much the same. I mean, I always say if, you know, Clement Attlee, who won the great victory in 1945, came back to Britain today, I mean, he'd be astonished at the changes until he walked back into the seat of government in Whitehall, and then he'd be in completely familiar territory. You know, so this is, this is, I think, the challenge for, for, for the progressive forces today. Um, and you can see it around issues like tuition fees. You know, it's classic. As we, uh, as we discuss the economy, I think I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be right back uh, with uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Another thing that defined your uh, tenure and in, in, in shaped attitudes toward you, uh, particularly among your, uh, your base, was uh, the Iraq War and your um, decision to side with President Bush uh, on that issue. Um, talk to me about that decision and, uh, and what reflections you have on it now you know, all uh, 14 years later or 15 years later? Certainly the most difficult decision I ever had to take. Um, and, you know, as I have said in, on, on, on many occasions, you know, when you come to a decision that is that important and that big, you know, you have to take it on the basis of what you think is right on the information you have at the time. And... Um, I always say to people that I can regret the failures in intelligence, obviously, and I think there are many things we could have done differently in how we managed the situation afterwards. But I mean, my own view still is that we, we're in a better position in the Middle East today without trying to deal with a, a regime that would have been clinging on to power as the wave of the Arab Spring had hit the nations of the Middle East. And so, you know, I, I can regret much about it, but I can't regret the actual decision in removing him. But yes, it was a hugely politically difficult decision. And the only thing I simply asked that people should do is that they should understand it was taken as a, a genuine decision of good faith. Um, this has been a, a, a subject of exploration over time in Parliament and elsewhere. I mean, there are those who, you know, use the words war criminal, suggesting that you went in under false pretenses and so on. It's eroded um, your, your, the political capital that you'd built up over a year. 
yeah, it's 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 um, it was difficult at the time, and it's been as difficult since for sure. But in the end, you 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 have one principal obligation, I think, as the leader of a country in in these circumstances, and that is to do what you genuinely think is right. Now, you may not be right, by the way, and that's a judgment that history can pass. Um, but you should do what you think is right. And, you know, I agonized over it as to whether it was best to, to act and remove Saddam. Was he going to be continue to be a threat or not? And I, in the end, concluded it was better to remove him than not. I guess the debate in the U.S. was, uh, was two. One is, um, what relationship did this have to do with the 9-11 attacks? Mm. Um, because it seemed a bit attenuated. Sure. And then the second was um, uh, whether, in fact, by removing him uh, in the way that he was removed, you unleashed, not you personally, but mm. the action unleashed these sectarian forces that we are now living with to this day. Sure, that is, that is what people often, often say. Um, and, you know, the debate about it will go on, obviously, for a, a long time. I mean, my view is that the, the connection still between terrorism and the, the, the possibility of the acquisition of, of nuclear, chemical, biological weapons is, was then and is now a, a huge problem and challenge still. And I think, you know, and I, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East now. I'm, I'm there twice a month and have been for many years. I mean, my view is that the, the forces at work, whether in Iraq or now in Syria or in Libya or all over the Middle East, are actually deep-rooted. And we should not forget the 9-11, of course, happened before the invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq. So I think you can debate this, but I think my own judgment is these forces are very, very deep. And in the end, the answer to them is not to keep a whole lot of repressive dictatorships in power. The answer to them in the end is to evolve those societies in the direction of greater freedom and greater democracy. Yeah, can, can democracy uh, flourish where there aren't civil institutions and where there is sort of long-standing sectarian struggle? I mean, that's, it seems, the challenge that we've run into uh, in several different places. Yeah, so the question is, does that mean that therefore you, you, know, you keep the dictatorships there? I think what the Arab Spring shows you, because it's really important to, to put this also within the context of what happened there. You know, in 2011, all of these dictatorships started to topple or come under pressure. And the reason for that was that in the end, the ordinary people are not prepared to live under that form of government, particularly when it's a dictatorship that's based on a sectarian position. Because obviously whether in Saddam's Iraq or in Assad's Syria, there were whole groups of people that were excluded from power on sectarian lines. So you're absolutely right in saying, of course, the challenge is once you remove that dictatorship, outcome those tribal and religious grievances. And, you know, that, frankly, is the thing that was underestimated, as I've always said. I mean, that is the, the, the central uh, issue in terms of how we handled it was the underestimation of what would happen because those civil institutions weren't there in the way they needed to be. But in the end, I think the, the answer is you've got to build them over time. And the question is, can you, 
This is why, strangely enough, when it, it came to the Arab Spring, I was one of the people arguing then, particularly in relation to Syria, but also actually in relation to Libya, if you can find a way of evolving this situation and a transition, then do it, because the one thing we learned from Afghanistan is Iraq is you can get rid of the dictatorship, but then these other problems surface. So if you can do it through transition peacefully, do it. Um, and the, the strange thing was that people would say, well, don't listen to them because, because of what happened in Iraq. But in a way, that is the problem we ended up with in Libya. It was precisely the same problem. Yes. Um, and now, where I sort of disagree with some people is they say, well, then the answer is to keep all these people in power. And I say, well, that's not a good answer. And in any event, the people won't put up with it. And then on the other side of it, though, people who say, we just got to carry on regardless. And I would say, no, of course, you've got to learn the lessons of the experience we went through. You know, I listened to you uh, and you make this case for uh, for change and for the uh, rejection of uh, authoritarian uh, leaders. You, you've been criticized here for your relationship with some of them, uh, General Sisi in Egypt, for example, who their democracy took hold, there was an election, and then the Muslim Brotherhood. The, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about democracy is you, you have to live with the verdict of, of the people, and the Muslim Brotherhood got elected and governed in a, in a tyrannical way, the military uh, responded, and now you have a, another author, author, authoritarian regime there. And, you know, you've been criticized for being uh, close to them by human rights uh, uh, people and so on yeah so the you know this is where you you throw out very tricky and difficult difficult political problems because the truth of the matter is when the muslim brotherhood came to power in egypt they started to change the country dramatically and i'm not sure that any form of democracy would have survived if they carried on in power and when the people came out in the street, and they came out, I think 13 to 20 million of them came out. I mean, it was a big popular uprising. Uh, it wasn't, a, you know, simply that the military intervened. It, it, frankly, if you had the Muslim Brotherhood still in power in Egypt today, I think the region would be a lot more dangerous. So, but do I think that in the end you have to evolve and transition towards democracy, the rule of law, whether in Egypt or anywhere else? Yes, of course. You wouldn't hold out... Uh, Sisi as a paragon of human rights, though? I think it's very difficult for the Egyptian government because they are subject to real pressures of terrorism and security questions. But, you know, I, don't misunderstand me. I am and always will be an advocate of the rule of law and of human rights. It's just that in the circumstances of the Middle East, it can be very difficult. Yeah. But the question is, is he trying to move the country in the right direction? And I think... You know, in the economic reforms he's making, the social reforms he's making, for example, what they're trying to do now in the education system, they basically are. Um, and, you know, if you went back to a situation where the Muslim Brotherhood were back in control in Egypt, I think you'd have a very, very difficult situation, as I say, for them and for the whole region. Yeah. As you say, it's, it's tricky. I remember sitting with uh, President Obama and, uh, and, and Hosni Mubarak, at the beginning of the president's term, and it was a interesting scene. Mubarak, it was it was like a scene out of The Godfather. You know, he was old, and he 
called him over and he's and Obama was asking for help on the on the Israeli Palestinian issue and he said well we'll do what we can he says but you'll learn the Middle East is a very complicated neighborhood and well, that's it, certainly true but uh, you know the difference with Sisi today for example is that he is genuinely trying to help on the Middle East peace process in a in a you know traditionally the Egyptians to be very frank stood back from it he is prepared to get into it what the Egyptians have been doing in Gaza over these last few months have been incredibly important. I mean, in my view, it actually offers us the most significant chance of progress on the Israeli-Palestinian question. So, you know, look, it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult thing, this, because you, you, you know, what you understand about politics, and you, you know this very well, David, having been with President Obama, is you get into situations where the you are making compromises uh, in order to, to try and get a, a good outcome. And, you know, the way I look at it is that there are regimes that I would say are obviously less than democratic, let's put it in that way, who are taking their country in completely the wrong direction, oppressing and brutalizing their people, um, their economies are going down and not up. And then you've got countries with a less than democratic form of government, certainly measured in Western terms, who are actually trying to move their country in the right direction and are making the reforms that hopefully will allow them to evolve over time to a properly democratic system. And you can never make a perfect judgment about this, but in each case, when I'm thinking about presidents or prime ministers who we work with many through my institute around the world, you know, all the time, the question that I have in my mind is, is this guy trying to do the right thing or not? And it's sometimes very difficult. And sometimes, frankly, you might get that judgment wrong. But yeah. yeah. It, the world is a complicated place. The, the, uh, I just want to ask you this because uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't, and you ought to have the chance to respond to it. But, you know, one of the criticisms you have is that you, don't, you haven't just traveled on behalf of your institute but on behalf of your own business interests and that you've represented some of these regimes in uh, in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan and so on, that have less than stellar human rights records. And to your to, to people who have supported you, uh, what what is your answer to that? Because my answer is, do not believe what you read in a large part of the British media about my post-prime ministerial activities, because it's just seen literally the creation of a, a sort of image of someone going around the world lining their pockets from all sorts of dictators. Um, we did have a program in Kazakhstan for a time, um, and when you say a program, what do you what do you do? So we were helping them very specifically on reforms because there's a whole group of younger reform-minded ministers, and we had a whole team of people that were living and working in the country. Um, personally, I didn't take any money from it. Okay, I don't know what the other regimes are that we're supposed to because, frankly, the work and I've done in the Middle East has always been not for profit, um, and the work we've done in Africa has always been not for profit. So a lot of these allegations, frankly, are not correct. Although I accept, you know, there's a, people criticize us for working in Kazakhstan at all. My point is very simple. It's a majority Muslim country that treats its people with great, um, its minorities with great respect, including its Jewish community. Uh, it's an ally of the West, despite being sandwiched between Russia and, and China. Um, and, you know, it's the only country I can think of that gave up its nuclear weapons and did it voluntarily. So, of course, it's not a, 
again, a Western-style democracy. But the work you did there was, was good work. So, uh, you know, I've spent the vast bulk of my time since leaving office on this. You know, if I really wanted to be, if, if commercial um, work was my, my main priority, I'd have been spending my time doing it. And do these regimes support your philanthropic work? Um, well, they do. If I'm doing a project in the in the in mm-hmm. the country, they can do. But mm-hmm. um, basically, I'm working in the work we do in Africa, for example, which is really the main focus of what we do now. That work, we will get support from you know various of the development mm-hmm. organisations and so on. You uh, one of the big tasks you took on when you left your uh, your post here was uh, as the negotiator for the so-called quartet Russia the US United Nations the uh, I guess the EU uh, on the Middle East and on Israel and the Palestinians uh, that many many men have run up on those rocks uh, you being one of them uh, good men uh, and women uh, what where where do you think that is going? I mean, what, it is, we see more settlements being uh, uh, developed uh, by the Israelis in the territories, in the occupied areas, more, more, a hardened position on the part of the Palestinians. Uh, what, do you see hope in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there is hope in the future, but it's going to come through this um, burgeoning and developing relationship between the Israelis and the Arabs. Now, they will never have a proper relationship unless this Palestinian issue is dealt with. But the thing that would give an Israeli prime minister strength to do a peace deal is if it was fully supported by the region. Um, and the thing that would give the Palestinians the confidence to make the compromises is, would be if they knew they had the region on side to do that. So that was a project Obama was working on when we met yeah. with Mubarak. Uh, yeah, and the important thing, I think, to recognize is that despite all the difficulties, there is some progress there. I mean, I, even when I left the quartet position, I mean, the problem with the quartet position was very simple, actually, which is that I made a fatal mistake for any politician, which is I, I adopted a position that had responsibility but not power, because I was never actually involved in the peace negotiations, formally at least. But since I left that, I've carried on working there. I have an office in Israel uh, now, uh, an office in the Middle East region, and I am convinced that there is a real opportunity for peace, provided that we can get to the point where the possibilities of strategic partnership between Israel and the Arab states properly recognized and form part of the underpinning for any peace process with the Palestinians. Is the building that the Israelis are doing now in those uh, territories, in those occupied areas, are those uh, an impediment to... Right, so settlements, you know, I could literally bore you for hours on settlements. I mean, the important thing to realize about what people talk about settlements is that in that word, there are all sorts of different things, right? I mean, they're all on the east side of the green line, if you like. But some of them are specifically in... Uh, Jewish neighborhoods of, of uh, East Jerusalem, which will come with the state of Israel in any settlement. Some are within some of the what are made, called the main settlement blocks, which are now you know reasonably significant. Um, 
uh, towns or cities, and then some of them yes. are dotted around the, the, the West Bank in circumstances where if they're built up over time, they really will become an impediment to the possibility of a Palestinian state. Now, my attitude to it is the quicker you therefore get to an agreement on territory and boundaries, the better. And, you know, of course, I, 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 I think it's important that nothing is done by Israel that impedes the prospect of, of the two-state solution because it remains the only viable solution there's going to be. We were uh, talking uh, earlier uh, at the conference uh, about uh, the challenges to democracies uh, today. And, and, and I said uh, that I think technology and the pace of change is difficult uh, for democracies, which, war, which are set up to be in certain ways plotting, especially when there are deep divisions. And the inability to respond to this rapid change is really difficult. But talk to me about your your sense of the state of, of uh, Western democracies today? Western democracies are under real challenge, I think, um, because the way that the political discourse works today is very divided, very fragmented, very polarized. That curiously produces a situation of gridlock and paralysis in the political systems. What that means is that the necessary changes that should take place in order to equip people for a fast-changing world don't happen. And then people become very frustrated with the political system and then tend to go, you know, even more to the extremes. So, you know, you can notice this all over the Western world right now. Politics is dividing into, into a sort of nationalistic right there's then what I would call a more kind of old-fashioned left that has had a renewal and rehabilitation of some of its um, policies. And then you've got what I would still say is, is, is a substantial middle, but it's not, as political parties get taken over by more extreme elements, then they're not necessarily represented in the same way, and they find it far harder to get traction. Now, sometimes partly through the accident of the French political system, you will get someone like Macron who emerges. But other than that, you're trying to, um, you're trying to deal with a political situation in which increasingly, in order to appeal to your activist base, you, you've got to be quite confrontational towards those that don't agree with you or in the different political party. When, good, good politics and bad governance. Yeah, this is this is a problem, I think, a real problem, because in the end, a lot of the problems, to, a lot of the solutions to the problems we face are practical. They're not really ideological. Now, I think what they do involve, which is where I think the progressive side is, as is, is, you know, as where, where things have moved on from the time of myself and Bill Clinton, where where things have changed, is that you will need a greater role for what I would call a strategic and empowering government. That's, you know, that is definitely true because these big changes that are necessary in infrastructure, technology, and so on will require a government that's, that's active, right, and powerful. But it's important the government's not simply, you know, switching the clock back half a century because that's not going to work. We're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Tony Blair. 
I want to talk about the current politics of your country and uh, my country uh, and how they fit into this rubric of uh, the challenges to Western democracy that you just mentioned. Um, we should talk about Brexit and uh, the forces that... Pre- Interestingly, the, the same sort of profile of voter who voted uh, for Brexit to remove uh, Britain from the EU uh, match up very nicely with the base of, uh, of President Trump, uh, older, uh, less educated, more a small town and rural uh, than, than city. On the other side, younger, uh, more metropolitan, higher levels of education. Um, so there, there seems to be something going on larger than just one election on one side of the pond or the other. Yes, for sure. There's, there's a, you know, there, there is a real sense amongst a significant part of the population of economic and cultural alienation. And that's producing a sharp reaction against globalization. Um, but... You know, I feel we've got to be more um, self-critical on the progressive side of politics. I think there are reasons why people will vote for the right that aren't necessarily all about feeling left behind. And, you know, there is a danger. We come out with a sort of stereotype of Brexit or, you know, Trump supporters that is, you know, actually intensifies mm-hmm. our inability to reach and understand why people are voting in the way that they are. Um, so, you know, this is why my, my view is that you have to deal with what are legitimate anxieties. Yeah, and you mentioned immigration as being... Immigration is one, one. You know, there are elements of sort of what I would call, and I don't like the phrase, but you put in inverted commas political correctness as well. You know, you've got to be careful with, with, with these issues, in my view, as, as progressives, not to appear that you're obsessive about them rather than, you know, advocating fairness for people. Um, I mean, I'm not a fan of identity politics. Okay, I think it's a, it's a dangerous route to go down. Um, I want a, a vision for the country that is a unifying vision, that you bring as many people into the tent as possible. Um, so, you know, I think... Yes, there's definitely a whole thing going on because people feel the world's changing around them very fast. They're losing control. They're losing their identity. And that is one element of what goes up to, to make up that support. But there are other elements. You know, there's an element as well, I think, that thinks things have got too paralyzed and stuck. They want someone to get yeah. things done. You know? and we, we spoke about that. I mean, that was sort of the appeal of Trump. Uh, the, you know, let me take care of it. I'll, I'll fix this. Uh, the strong man. Yeah, and it's it's an appeal for people. Um, now, of course, the the paradox is this: that the people who come to power with that sort of strong man image, if they're engaged in a very divisive politics, what they find when they come to power is that they can't build the alliances necessary to get things done. So. What you end up with is a situation where the person in charge is kind of railing against the system, but not actually able to move the system. Yes. Now that is a that's that's difficult, and 
you know, we, we've, we face a very similar situation here in the UK where you've got um, Brexit is such a dominating thing. The truth isn't the government's not really able to get anything else done. So these big challenges we're talking about, you know, technology, infrastructure, tax reform, etc., this is not happening when they need to happen. So it's, 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 a, it's a strange thing, this. And this is why I say that the concept of building bridges, which is a diminishing concept in Western politics, you know, I know you voted for Donald Trump or I know you voted for Brexit, but I want to understand why you didn't. I actually want to build an alliance with you around these things because I think part of what you stand for I disagree with, but part of what you stand for I can understand, and I think there's a better way of dealing with it that's this way. I, mean, I think that building bridges concept is incredibly important in politics, but it's not, it's not in vogue. Uh, how does the Brexit story end? Well, it ends in, um, I mean, to state the obvious, doing it or not, and doing it in a understood. Way, but I mean, where way. do you think it's where? Where do you? Th- uh, you're a as keen a political analyst as there is in this country. Um, right now, the clock is ticking. March 29th, uh, 2019. Britain is out. Uh, what stops that clock, or what produces a result that you and others? Uh, would find uh, uh, satisfying? Well, I am increasingly of the view that it is possible that that, um, the country will change its mind on Brexit. And I'm more optimistic about that prospect now, even though I still think the likelihood is it goes ahead. But the truth is, we know a lot more about this process now than we did. New facts are coming to light all the time. You know, for example, we, 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 we thought we, we would get a, an immediate £350 million a week extra for our health care system that desperately needs the money. It actually turns out we're going to be having, spending less money on the health service, not getting more money for it. Um, you know, the economy, we were the fastest growing economy in the G7 in 2016. We're now the slowest. You know, if you look at things like the motor car industry, the investment's significantly down. I mean, down by large amounts. And our currency, of course, has been devalued. So I think there, I'm not saying this but will people, happen, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, this, we, we, we were speaking about this. Um, people, uh, it, it's hard to describe. These things that you describe are not necessarily felt in the daily lives of, of people. And it's hard to describe pain uh, until you actually feel it. And uh, you look at polling now, and while people may have more misgivings, it still suggests that if Brexit, the Brexit vote were held today, that people, that a majority, albeit a slim one, would vote for it. It's, it's true. The, the polling, if you look at the headline figures, has not changed yet. But I, I think it's when people begin to understand that one of the reasons why we've got such a problem in our healthcare system, which they really do care about, is because we are going through this Brexit process, we're actually going to find a tougher set of economic circumstances. And we're losing, by the way, employees we desperately need, European workers who are not coming in the same number, and which we really urgently need within our healthcare system. And where the government, frankly, its only focus has got to be Brexit. I mean, there's no bandwidth really for anything else. So I think it's when people start... If, if people start to see a connection 
between the problems the country has and going through this uh, this this traumatic um, and dramatic change in the country where you're trying to unwind over 40 years of trade connection and economic connection um, you know then I think it, it it can change but this is this is the debate that uh, will be had in the country and it's going to be a big and a lively debate and it's going to and, carry on and you don't think that uh, Theresa May who's a unpopular uh, leader right now uh, can get a can fashion an agreement that she could get through parliament well it's very hard because there is a there is a very fundamental disagreement at the heart of the conservative party this is the problem because you know first of all you decide whether you do brexit or not okay but once you decide to do brexit there are very many different varieties of Brexit. There's a Brexit in which you get out of the political structures of Europe but stay in the economic structures, become like Norway or Switzerland. Yeah. Um, well, we've decided not to do that. If you're not doing that, that's much tougher. So you have to then negotiate new trade arrangements with Europe. It's very complicated to do if you want to get close to Europe. Um, or alternatively, you could decide that you don't want that closer relationship. Or alternatively, you could decide you're actually prepared to go out without a deal at all and say, we're, 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 we're completely free and, you know, if we have tariffs, that's, that's fine. We'll just take the chance on that. So the problem is at the moment within the government, there's quite a profound disagreement amongst its leading members as to whether they're arguing for a future for Britain that is outside of Europe but still deeply connected to Europe or a future for Britain that says we're out of Europe and what's more... We're now going to market going, ourselves going alone, yeah. Yeah, as not Europe, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a, this is the sort of, um, you know, we should become like Singapore type of thing. I, I, I can't uh, leave you without uh, uh, asking you about America's role in the world today. There could not be a more profound shift than the one we've seen between President Obama and President Trump. President Trump's articulated the America first approach, uh, critical of NATO, withdrawn from the TPP, and um, uh, really uh, urging, by the way, Britain to go through with Brexit and uh, advocating bilateral agreements and so on. Um, What is the state of America's leadership in the world today, and um, what concerns do you have about it? It's... it's, uh it's a very um, it's a very important time in international relations, and you know I'm I'm a profound believer in America's role in the world, and that it's got to stay engaged with the world and build partnerships and build alliances. And look, I think you know, and I, I try to be. I mean, first of all, because by the way, President Trump is your president. Frankly, it's better if he succeeds than if he fails for everyone. Um, you know him. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I can... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a closed book, I think, it would yeah. be fair to say. So, yes, I think that's fair to say. Um, the trouble is you can, for example, say there is certain unfairness in the trading relationship with China or you can want to amend trade agreements, or you can say, for example, that in NATO, there should be a bigger burden borne by European countries. I 
think what's incredibly important is that this view of the world, which, you know, America first, I mean, in one sense, why wouldn't you put America first? We should put Britain first. I mean, everyone should put their country first. But it's how you frame that and how you do it in a way that may rectify what you see as problems, which you've got a mandate to fix, but do it in a way that keeps your alliances strong. And, you know, the dominant geopolitical change of the 21st century is going to be China. I mean, it's, you know, every time I go there and I come back, I realize what is happening in China is going completely to change the geopolitics of the 21st century. And all nations are going to have to work out how they stand in relation to China because its power is going to be so large. And what is necessary in order to deal with that, in my view, and have the evolution of China happen in a benign way, which I hope and believe it will, but it's important that it does, otherwise we're going to have big trouble, is that America stays strong, Europe stays strong, and the two stay in alliance with each other. Now, my only plea to President Trump or whoever is American president is approach things in a way that keeps your allies with you and keeps the Western world united because we're going to need that as we go through this big geopolitical change, which is a perfectly natural change, by the way. It's going to happen, and it, it should happen. I mean, China's got a right to take its proper place in the world. From our, our region, we're going to get picked off by the other players in the world. If we're together, we can partner you, and together we can be powerful enough to hold our own as the world changes. So sometimes I think part of the problem is that the way parts of that nationalistic right look at the world is that they're not, they're not fully appreciating the fact that the way the world's developing, you know, what actually keeps us together is far more important than anything else. And, you know, if you take the, the, you know, if you take the issue of climate change, for example, now there, if America departs that, um, that arrangement, I think you will find the void filled. But I don't think that, you know, in a way, provided people are going to do it, <laughs> that's, yes. that's fine. But if America started, for example, to pull itself back from NATO, and I don't believe you will, but if you did, well, that, that void's not going to be filled by anyone else. That's dangerous. So I, this is where, where I think we just, you know, we've got to as well from our side of the, the Atlantic, you know, reach out and make sure and try and make sure that the lens through which your president is looking at the world is one that's, that's going to strengthen us. Good place to leave it. Tony Blair, great to be with you. Thank you for this. Thank you for speaking to the group from the University of Chicago. Always good to hear from you. It's a pleasure, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 